This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Carlson, Carlson, världens bästa Carlson. Carlson, Carlson, hoj här kommer Carlson. Carlson, Carlson, ingen faktiskt, ingen annan Carlson. Carlson, jag så bra som mig. Carlson, Carlson, Carlson scores! Carlson, Carlson, världens bästa Carlson. Welcome to another episode of the Keeping Carlson Fantasy Hockey Podcast. The best fantasy hockey podcast in the world. Hosted by two guys own Eric Carlson in their keeper pools. I'm very excited for today's episode. We've got a special episode for all of you, and before I tell you about it, let me just introduce myself. I'm Elon Dubrovsky, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Brian Calm. All-star, hello, Elon. Hello, everybody. It's good to be back. I feel like it's been so long since we recorded, even though I think it's just been the usual week. Yeah, but I guess time slows down when there's no hockey going on. Like I mentioned, we have a big show today, and not just because we're going to be covering all of the fantasy hockey headlines from the past week which was only like two or three days of games, but also because we have an interview with Scott Cullen from TSN. Brian did an interview with Scott Cullen. We're going to play it on the show. It was a really good chat we had. We talked about several players like Pasternak, Nash, Kucherov, Ovechkin. We talked about a couple teams, the Leafs and Panthers. We talked about if there is such a thing as somebody who is better in the second half. You know, we have that myth of the second half performer. We tried to dig into that a little bit. Talked about shooting percentages, who's going to see a downturn over the rest of the season. And also just some general like fantasy philosophy and strategy. It's a good one. Jam-packed. Yeah, definitely something you should stick around for, but the episode itself is going to be jam-packed because Brian and I have some fantasy hockey headlines to get to. But before we do, let me mention that this episode of Keeping Carlson, like all of them this season, are brought to you by DailyFaceOff.com, your source for starting goalies, line combinations, news, their fantasy hockey minutes, and... I might as well drop the news here. We also have an interview with Brock Sagan from Daily Faceoff, which we're going to be releasing later this week. So lots going on with Keeping Carlson, but let's get to the first fantasy hockey headline of the week. And it seems like we do this every week. We talk about a goalie that's been injured, and now and then we talk about the backup. So we talked about how Jimmy Howard was down, and we talked about Morazic. Then last week it was Pekarine out, and we talked all about whether you should grab Hutton or Mazanic. And now, here we go again. It's a broken record, but it's looking like Sergei Bobrovsky is going to be out for quite a while. So, Brian, we need to know, what do we do? Do we grab Curtis McElhenney? Is there another backup that we should be looking at? What do Pulis do with the loss of Sergei Bobrovsky? Yeah, the latest on him is that it's his groin. He's going to miss about a month. That's not good news for the Blue Jackets. And Probably not for your fantasy team, too, because a good goaltender on the Columbus Blue Jackets is probably giving you good save percentage numbers, as Bobrovsky has been doing, 
but not necessarily delivering in the top echelon compared to other goaltenders in terms of wins and goals against average. And if Curtis McElhenney becomes that goalie, well, I guess he's like a below average NHL goaltender. He's a good guy for a backup role. I don't think he's somebody who's going to see sustained success in a starter's role in Columbus. I think you're in trouble if you're going to start relying on him. It's different than if you were picking up Carter Hutton, who's taking the reins for the Nashville Predators while Peke Rene is out because the Nashville Predators are a very good hockey team this year. The same can't be said for Columbus. So really, you're looking at starts and saves and time on ice and any of those stats that your league counts that count on volume of shots and games played, but not necessarily quality of numbers. The wild card here is a fellow by the name of Anton Forsberg, who is having himself a year down in Springfield of the AHL. He's got an 18-6-1 record with a 2.04 goals against average and a 9.27 save percentage in 26 games played so far. That save percentage mark puts him fourth amongst goalies who have faced more than 600 shots in the AHL this season. He was a seventh rounder back in 2011, and I guess he's going to get a chance. He had a short sniff last year, didn't do a whole lot with it, but I feel like the door will open for him at some point. I feel like Columbus is going to want to see what they have, or maybe McElhenney will force their hand by not playing up to snuff. But again, you're looking at a situation where your goalie for Columbus is not going to get you a whole lot in terms of wins and goals against. You're looking at save percentage. You're not wanting to rely on Forsberg either. And actually, in my league, where goalies are treated like gold, I don't know if everybody's not paying attention for the All-Star break or, or what's going on, but neither one has been added as of today. Usually it happens like within 20 minutes or 30 minutes of an injury, you know, when Vasilevsky was picked up earlier this year and then Carter Hutton also soon after Rene's injury. I think that speaks to the quality of the opportunity you have if these guys are available in your league, but they're not going to hurt you. You might as well try them out if you are hurting at the goaltending position. Yeah, and I should mention that Curtis McElhenney doesn't have great numbers on the season, right? He's got four wins in 15 games and a 907 save percentage. But if you just look at his last two games, he had a 34 save win against Boston, only one goal against, 971 save percentage. And then he came in for relief when Bobrovsky went down against Winnipeg and only let in one goal on 17 shots. So, Small sample size, obviously, but maybe McElhenney can string together some good performances and really cement himself as the guy there until Bobrovsky comes back. But, Brian, like you say, if not, it seems like they've got a quality AHL goalie coming in that could also take the reins and maybe it would be like a Calvin Pickard situation where the guy from the minors comes in and sort of steals the spot until the starter, the Varlamov or the Bobrovsky in this case, comes back. Yeah, well, the best I've ever seen McElhaney was during a short stint in Ottawa where they were desperate for a healthy goalie. He came in, he posted a 917 save percentage over seven appearances. He did the same in Anaheim two years earlier, over 10 appearances. But over his career, in 112 appearances, he has a 903 save percentage, which is why I called him a below-average NHL goalie. Elon, hopefully the magic he's had over the last two games will continue past the All-Star break. I'm just not banking on it. Okay, one last thing on this topic, Brian. Rank right now the following three goalies of who you'd want to have the most, okay? Peter Morazic, Carter Hutton, Curtis McElhenney. Go. I'm going to do it in the same order you said. I'd go Morazic. Hutton, McElhaney, and I choose Mrazic just because Detroit has been one of the better possession teams over the last month or two. They've been right up there in the league 
Nashville has still been good. Not as good as Detroit, though. So I will take Mrazek first, and then Hutton, and then McElhaney. And though it does seem like all three of them will be back to being backups, as of now at least, when the fantasy playoffs start. So we'll definitely let you know if that news changes. But as of now, think of them as people to help you currently, but not people that you can use to help you win the championship at the end of the season. Elon, that's a good point. I'm kind of hurting at the goaltending position now, but it does mean nothing for the playoffs. I'm already comfortably in them from what I can tell, unless something catastrophic happens. And adding them to my team now is kind of just burning roster moves or treading water. There's no point to it because I'm looking ahead now to the playoff matchups and I don't expect any of these guys to be playing when they come around. Okay, and some other injury news. Not sure there's too much to say about it, but let's just report all of the Pittsburgh Penguins are injured again. Malkin, Latang, and even Crosby missed the All-Star game. So we'll find out more news. The Penguins tend to not give too much information about how long these injuries will be, so you'll see. But obviously right now, it's not the best time to be owning any of these other Penguins players who you picked up, like a David Perron even. Probably his value goes down while he doesn't have these quality line mates to play with. Elon, you made a pitch to me to bring in Bo Bennett, and you just said, hey, something great could happen because he's playing with Malkin, and of course Malkin sat out the game before the All-Star break, and now we're stuck with Bo Bennett, and I don't know what to do with him. Well, at some point, Matthew Perot's going to come back, and he'll he'll take his rightful spot where Bennett is currently sitting. A couple of other injuries, uh, Tommy Wingles is out for San Jose. It's looking like that's going to be a long-term injury. He had already started to slow down a lot. We talked about it on the podcast. And Michael Bodker, who we just talked about last week as saying he's been a bright spot with Arizona, he suffered a ruptured spleen and is going to be out for four to six weeks. So, Brian, is there any fantasy advice or takeaways from any of these injuries that I've mentioned? Not really, unless you picked up Bodker to fill up a roster spot after what we said about him last week. You're going to be looking for somebody else now. If you had Wingles on your roster, you might have been snoozing a little bit. He has just two points in his last 14 games played. When he comes back, I'm not sure where he'll slot into the lineup. He did have a similar dry run earlier this year that ended with a four-point game. I'm not saying that'll happen again. We'll have to wait and see what his situation is when he returns to the lineup, but you're probably not going to miss him very much. But hey, maybe this means Melker Carlson's going to get an even longer stint in the top six on San Jose. We can only hope. (laughs) Also, by the way, Matthew Nieto is in the top six right now. So we'll see how things shake out in San Jose. But let's move on from injury news. Let's go to outjuries. So much more pleasant of a topic to discuss. And there's a lot of players that have already come back or are going to be coming back soon. Let's start with Jacob Truba, who's out for a long time. But now he's back for Winnipeg. Seems like every week we're talking about either someone getting injured or outjured in Winnipeg. But now that Truba comes back, my big question is how does this affect the value of Enstrom and Bogosian, two defensemen who came back recently and were doing pretty well, especially Bogosian. He was on fire scoring goals, though I'd imagine Truba pushes him down the depth chart. Actually, Ilana, I think I disagree. The Jets really count on Bogosian to handle tough minutes, and he has had a good run lately. But I'm not sure that the Jets are really going to be looking to Truba to replace him or supplant him or compete with him a whole lot, because although he does also bear a fair amount of defensive responsibility on that Winnipeg blue line, and he's responded well to that challenge, But Truba has not had a whole lot of opportunity to put up points. His points per 60 minutes rate this year is barely half of what it was last year. And that's actually explained pretty well by the drop in his on-ice shooting percentage. It went from a very high 
9% last year to just above 5% this year. His on-ice shooting percentage is actually about equal to the lowest amongst Jets D this year, though, so perhaps he's going to see a bump that'll help him gather more than the five even-strength points he's seen in 32 games played so far this year. He's not exactly a power play fixture either, though, and I don't really expect the points to come flooding in all of a sudden for Jacob Truba. Well, the one counterpoint I'll make to what you said is all of these numbers for Truba, the low on-ice shooting percentage and everything, this is all from the old Jets when they weren't scoring any goals. Now the Jets score five, six goals a game, apparently. So Truba's come back now from his injury, you know, in his first game, got an assist. So I feel like I almost want to throw all the early season numbers out of the window and see what happens over the next few weeks with the Jets defensemen. That actually crossed my mind, Elon. It's a really good point. But for me, it was counterbalanced by the fact that Dustin Bufflin is a full-time D-man now, and he wasn't for the first chunk of Truba's time on ice this year. So I feel like that doesn't do him a whole lot of favors on the Jets' depth chart, but again, we have yet to see where exactly he's going to slot in. I just don't expect it's going to be in a very offensive role. All right, well, definitely someone to watch. Then, like I said, there's a bunch of other people who are about to be outjured, so they haven't come back yet, but we could start with Kari Ramo for Calgary. He's supposedly healthy and ready to come back to the Flames net, except is there room for him? Because Yoni Ortio has been doing fantastically in Ramo's absence. He's been even getting most of the starts over Jonas Hiller lately. So, Brian, what do you think is going to happen in the Calgary net? They're not going to hold three goalies, or are they? Yeah, the answer seems unclear. I wonder if Orteo's last start might have been a little indication, though it was not as good as his previous starts. He kind of fell off a bit from the Superman that everybody came to expect, kind of like the Flames season in a nutshell, or at least what we expect the Flames season to become in a nutshell. He was on fire. He was doing so great, playing way above his head, and then he came crashing down. I Maybe I'm stretching a little here. But what I see here is that Kerry Ramo is a free agent next year. And with what Ordeo's shown, it seems like he could be a reasonable number two option. Ramo hasn't necessarily set the bar particularly high for that position in Calgary. At this point, the team is saying that it's unclear what they're going to do the rest of the year. I still definitely think myself that Hiller should get the bulk of the starts. But if you are looking to add another goalie, this is a situation that is probably worth monitoring for you. Yeah, unfortunately, we don't have additional insight as to what Calgary is going to do. But I wouldn't be jumping to grab Ramo or Ordeo right now unless you sort of have the spot and have the available acquisition because I could see it going either way in terms of who they decide to stick with behind Hiller. Another player coming back soon. He's already been practicing with the team. It's apparently just a matter of time. Mikhail Granlund is going to be returning to the Minnesota Wild. Will he be returning to his... Spot on the top line alongside Parisi and Pominville, which uh, Koivu has been sitting in and actually doing pretty well recently. I mean, Granlund didn't have such a great season so far. You know, in 32 games that he played, he only had four goals and 11 assists to show for it. A lot of people drafted him this season because he was really great last season and did steal that number one line center spot and also was playing on the top power play. But Brian, what do you think Mikhail Granlund's value is now that he's about to come back? Should people be looking to grab him now before someone else does? Grenland might be somebody that you want to pick up. And Elon, I know that sounds counterintuitive because, well, you did mention his poor production so far this year. And also, we don't know if he's going to step down from line one to line two because playing with Pominville and Parise is a bit different from playing with Jason Zucker and Thomas Vanek. Although, let's make sure to point out that Zucker leads the wild 
in even strength goals scored so far this year. He's got 15, almost doubling second best, who is Zach Parisi with eight. But let's go back to Granlin and talk about his season as a whole, because the the strange thing is that everything has looked really good with him at even strength aside from his production. He has good ice time. He has good offensive deployment. He has very good possession numbers. His personal and team shooting percentages are healthy at the very least. They're not too high, but they're certainly not too low. But yeah, it's all just amounted to 10 even strength points in 32 games played this year. You can throw on three power play points and a couple miscellaneous ones. And what many of us hoped would be a breakout year for him has only amounted to 15 total points in those 32 games he's played so far. But again, you look back at his other numbers below the surface, and he's actually got virtually the best goals for percentage on his team at 5-on-5. He's also seen the second most scoring chances for per 60 minutes of any Minnesota player this year. So it's kind of a head-scratcher. And this is why I said that I think he might be a guy that is ripe for the picking that you can pick up that somebody else has already given up on, or at least somebody that you can watch, because he does get to play with top talent. Even that second line is still pretty good, and he should have the offensive acumen to put up numbers. He's got a lot of support from his underlying numbers, so let's hope that turns into good box score appearances too. All right, so Granlin's definitely someone to watch, and especially, I'm not sure exactly in Yahoo, but in ESPN, he's center, left-wing, and right wing eligible so he slots in wherever you need him if you want him in your lineup another guy coming back soon is artem anisimov on columbus we already talked about their goalie troubles but hey they're getting another forward back finally you know slowly but surely all of the forwards from columbus are back where they need to be brian where do you think anisimov slots in and does he have any value well columbus already has ryan johansson and brandon dubinsky on lines one and two and if they stay at their natural center positions That puts Anisimov on the third line, and there is arguably not even enough talent in Columbus to round up an effective top six, let alone top nine. So I have low expectations for Artem Anisimov, even though I feel like we've mentioned him last year from time to time as a guy who goes on like the odd run of production. He's never been a really relevant player in fancy leagues over the course of his career. The closest he's come has been the two years that he's played in Columbus, but even then, he's been a half-point-per-game guy at best, and that's while riding higher shooting percentages. So feel free to watch him. If you're in a really deep league, maybe a half-point-per-game guy is worth it to you, but keep in mind, he might not crack the top six in Columbus, and beyond that, there's not a whole lot of daylight. And one final outjury I want to talk about. This is a maybe-potential outjury this season. I want to talk about Kimo Timonen, because I've started to see... News stories about him on Roto World. Once a week or so, they give us an update about what's happening with Timonen. He's been out all season with blood clots. The latest news is that he no longer has blood clots in his lungs and now only has blood clots in his legs. So I guess that's good. But apparently the word is he's still hoping that he can play this season. And if he does play, and assuming his role with Philadelphia stays the same, and assuming he isn't affected by this injury, I know it's a lot of assumptions, but he is an effective fantasy player to have in most leagues, especially deeper leagues. Last year, he had 35 points in 77 games, and that was after a really horrible start where nobody on Philadelphia was scoring. So you take out the start, and he was pretty much a half-point-per-game player. And previous years, you know, 43 points he has won, 44, 55, way back in 06, 07, so maybe that's not going to happen again. But he has been an effective fantasy player. So if, I guess, if you're in a really deep league and you have an available IR slot, maybe throw him in if he is going to come back. I don't even know. Brian, what do you say? You can stash him if you want, Elon, but 
I think we might be getting ahead of ourselves here. We're seeing some updates, and sure, they may appear to be positive news. I feel like we're still a long way from things resolving here. I haven't seen any reliable indications that his return is even really close to happening. There's a lot of steps to take. He had a super serious thing. Like, blood clots don't just go away. It's not like he's waiting for a broken limb or a torn whatever to heal. So, okay, stash him if you like, but don't count on him coming back, which is sad. Our fantasy hockey lineups are much worse off without him. Get well, chemo. And that does it for all of the main headlines we wanted to cover this week. So without further ado, let's cue up Brian's interview with Scott Cullen from TSN. What a catch! On the line with me from Toronto is a guest who I'm really excited to finally have on the show, Scott Cullen from TSN. He is their resident fantasy sports expert. If you're trying even a little in fantasy sports or especially fantasy hockey, you should know his name. He's also part of TSN's new analytics team, and he joins me right now on Keeping Carlson. How you doing, Scott? I'm awesome. How are you today? I'm really good and actually just enjoying the peace and quiet and calm that seems to be surrounding hockey right now. I'm not minding reading about deflated footballs for like two straight days. I can I can use the break. It's been like a fever pitch so far in the hockey and fantasy hockey season. Yeah, I, I feel kind of the same way that, uh, you know, the the season can be almost relentless, you know, with news and and stats and so on coming night after night after night that it's it's nice to get just a few days away from uh, from the schedule and yeah, whether it's deflated footballs or you know maybe maybe watch a movie, uh, you know just do something and then uh, kind of get back into back into it full swing next week. Yeah, and there's there's like so many sources. I think that that's a big part of it, and so much pace on Twitter in terms of the amount of news that comes at you and how quickly it comes at you, but. You do a fantastic job of distilling all that in your statistically speaking columns over at tsn.ca, which we have endorsed and referenced many a time on Keeping Carlson. And what I like about them a lot is they are a fantastic mix of fantasy and analytics insight. Tell us a little bit about your methodology. How do you sift through every player in the league to come up with the ones that you flag in your column? And well, you know, I started box scores, you know, just the, you know, the, the most basic of ways is going through the box scores and seeing, okay, well, who had, who had multi-point games tonight? You know, that's kind of the one thing that, that jumps out at me. And then I, I look to see whether or not, you know, there's something to build off of that, you know, okay. So-and-so had two assists, but he hasn't had a point in four games before that. So really those two assists don't really amount to much in, in terms of value. Like I, I great if you happen to have them, but you know, if, if you've been eating donuts for the, the previous four games, what good is um, knowing that he had two assists in the next one? It's almost like I want to find, you know, is there more to it than just those two assists in this game? You know, and, and you know, you can kind of go back and say, okay, well, he had two assists tonight, but he has five points in six games before that. Well, you know, now you're starting to build a bit of a trend on, on what's happening with this player. And so that's, that's kind of the first area that I start with is, is you know, basic box score stuff, just going through it. Um, for every player. And then in addition to that, I check time on ice and, and see if there's anything there that jumps out at me. And now this is the kind of thing that comes with practice, right? Like if I said to somebody, okay, well, you start looking at box scores and let me know if any of this ice time stands out to you. Well, if you haven't been doing it, you know, you're not going to know the difference between a guy playing 20 minutes tonight, you know, compared to somebody else, because you don't know what their trend is, what the regular 
ice time is. You know, like the, the, the other day, I think I saw something about Jake Gardner playing 25 minutes, and I knew that his ice time had been down for the Leafs recently. So I was like, okay, well, I, I have to double check that and kind of see where that is. And it turns out it was, uh, you know, his season high. And and that happens kind of from time to time where I I, I see somebody's ice time, like, okay, well, that's different than what uh, they've usually been getting. I mean, maybe maybe the guy got hurt and, and left the game early. You know, ice time basically alerts me to to all these things, and so I. You know, try and pick up a, f- a few notes that way, and then then I'll go to uh, the more advanced stats. Whether I, I look at War on Ice or HockeyStat.ca or Natural Stat Trick, all any of the ones that have kind of game by game information, and, and I'll check out you know what the possession numbers were for the night, what the matchups were. You know, sometimes you can you know you'll see somebody got crushed on on possession numbers, and you can kind of see okay, well, what was the matchup? Who were they playing against? And it gives you kind of some idea beyond the the goals and assists because knowing that a player had an assist doesn't tell you a whole lot about what the rest of their game was. And so I, I kind of like having more information available. Uh, it takes a little while to, to dig through, you know, every box score and, and then every kind of advanced stat for each game. But this is the fun stuff to dig into. For sure. And I want to touch on possession stats again in, in a couple minutes. But first, I, I feel like I should have disclosed at the start of this interview that we are in a fantasy league <laughs> together. <laughs> and no, I, you I don't, don't need know. to can disclose you, can that. Can you remember what happened last week? Do you have any memory? Uh, I've long since forgotten it. I've moved okay. on. I'm, I'm all about the future okay. now. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. I'm, I'm just. I'm not. I won't say anything either. It was seven no, to two. It was, it was definitely not seven to two. So yeah. I, I want to make sure you're not. You're not withholding anything from me. Like this isn't some evil plot for me to extract your your secret fantasy techniques no. that you will be forthcoming. Oh yeah, yeah. That's uh, <laughs> like I've been doing. I've been doing this long enough that I, I uh, and playing in enough fantasy pools that I, I've been beaten many times by by people who who I've given information to along the way. And these are the the perils of the job when you're when you're considered a fantasy sports expert. Is that you know pe- people will beat you with your own information. Right. And I and I have a confession to make, which is that I did use your own draft list against you <laughs> in in our auction draft earlier this year. You might have noticed just a couple times. I noticed it seemed you like a lot of the same guys I did as draft that was uh, you know like that that happened that happens too like particularly when it's an auction right is you can't sneak up on people you know in, in a draft when it comes around and all of a sudden in the eighth or tenth round you pull out a name and people go oh I wasn't thinking of you well you do it in an auction everybody goes oh I wasn't thinking of that guy but if you're interested now I'm interested <laughs> you know and, and then it, it can escalate from, from there so yeah that's uh, that's all all part of the uh, the challenge and I I've never been been very good at uh, sort of hiding the players that I'm interested in you know like because if I'm putting stuff out on the website or whatever and then you know and then I go to draft a, a team in a league well people know what my list is and that's you know I just kind of list I don't have any kind of secret list where oh yeah these guys are these are my real special picks that I uh, am holding back from the public well you know I thought a red herring on your list this year maybe to throw everybody off and and I do want to say that I kind of used it I'd I'd like to rather just attribute our similar preferences to great minds thinking alike but one guy on your list that you could have thrown out there is someone for everybody to go get and then you can sit back and watch them in the pools that you're against them in is Johnny Gaudreau row i actually ended up with him by accident like i don't know what i was doing i got excited like seeing the name johnny on the screen i got like a six dollar bid on him which is really peanuts in the context of our draft and i dropped him after a week because i was like what am am i doing with this guy i don't know what happened you projected him for 23 goals 32 assists and 55 points and right now on the season he's on pace for 23 goals 
39 assists and 62 points. What what tipped you off? You know what? And look, there's there's no guarantees on rookies because I I've had some success on picking rookies other times like I sort of infamously it was when Patrick Kane was the first overall pick and I was like oh but that guy is too small and skinny and he's gonna have a hard time adjusting and I, I projected something like 36 or 39 points or something well you know Patrick Kane's rookie year was like 72 points or something like that like it wasn't it wasn't even in the ballpark I, it's not like I was the only one surprised I mean I think there were a lot of people that you know when you take those smaller players and you're not sure how they're going to adjust to, to playing a, a man's game as it is but as time has gone on I I've given the young guy, I guess, a little bit more more credit. And in the case of Gaudreau, one, he's not as young as you know guys coming out of junior because he's got that collegiate background. So I was a little more willing to to buy into you know league equivalencies and things like that. Like, and you know, I, I'm not a slave to okay, well, a guy from hockey East is definitely going to score this much, and when he goes to the NHL, like I don't, I don't look at it that way. But you know, knowing what the standard college hockey player how his points per game translates to the NHL. And you see that Goudreau had two points per game last year in in Hockey East. I thought, all right, well, there's a chance that he can be a good player, like a productive player as a rookie. And then, you know, you look at the situation in Calgary and you go, okay, well, there's going to be opportunity for him to play because the Flames really don't have a whole bunch of quality scoring wingers. You know, Yuri Hoodler was kind of the one guy that I thought would be ahead of Goodrow. And, you know, for the most part, they've been playing together anyway. Hoodler's played right wing. So it wasn't any kind of, you know, great secret on Goodrow, but it was probably an evolution in my thinking in that I'm more willing to give a small, talented rookie a favorable projection. And I mean, even projecting for 55 points isn't hitting a home run of a season, but at the same time, it's it's really hard picking guys who haven't played in the league because you don't know. Well, look, you know, you saw with him, you know, the first handful of games, Goudreau did nothing. Oh, I know. Yeah, well, that's exactly. You know, you, that's you, why I don't have him. Yeah, you got that experience firsthand, and like, not only did he not have points, but like, I think he had one shot on goal in the first five games, right? Like, there there was nothing to to really cling to and, and say, okay, this is definitely going to be worthwhile. But then all of a sudden, it turned kind of quickly, and you know, I I also this was after I had. Produced but I had heard from some of the guys who blog about the Flames and things like that that, they're, that they were pretty high on him as well based on what they saw in preseason and things like that. That Basically, they, they sort of were supporting the, the projection that I gave that they thought that was probably more optimistic than other people were, but they were they were down with it, I guess, based on what they had seen. Let's return to how you decide who's in your statistically speaking column. You mentioned possession numbers, and you often do include Corsi. So I'm wondering, where do you stand on Corsi's importance to a player's fantasy value? We've had this chat a couple times in the show. Back in our early days, we were really big on it. And we've really cooled off since. And I'm wondering, do you see a correlation there? I, I use it almost as like a a clue if I'm not seeing the production I expect out of a player. You know, like I guess in the case of Goudreau, right? That you look at him, and I don't know, his Corsi number may have been actually been okay in the first five games. But if, if I see a player who isn't producing all that much, and, and I want to see his possession numbers, and you go, okay, well, you know, they're still generating shots. Or like... Yeah, the puck is more often in the other team's end when he's on the ice. It's like, at least give me that information so I can dig further and, and you know find out. Oh gosh, you know their on ice shooting percentage is just terrible right now. I mean, look, you go back to last season that Ovechkin had for most of the season his, his on ice shooting percentage was on like some like five and a half or six percent, which for a first line player is just you know it's unheard of. It's like you're, it's like you put him out there with fourth liners and and to carry that for a whole season that kind of gives you the reasoning, I guess, for for why Ovechkin's assist numbers weren't so high last year, but you know, and not specific to Ovechkin, but you know, look at the players in general. If I if I see a guy who whose kind of goals and assists aren't where I expect them to be, 
I'm going to look at the possession numbers and kind of see whether or not, okay, yes, they're getting caved in and maybe maybe he's just not getting as many chances. That would be kind of a clue to me that I need to get rid of the player. Uh, or are these underlying numbers kind of strong enough that, you know what, I, I, I should ride it out a little bit longer. I think I think early in the year, Nick Bukestad was one of those players who wasn't scoring a lot, but his possession numbers were pretty good, and his individual numbers, like shots on goal and things like that, were were pretty strong. And I, I recall kind of, you know, in a few places saying, like, yeah, probably worth hanging on to Nick Bukestad or, or, you know, scooping him up if people have let him go. And obviously it depends on the depth of your league whether Nick Bukestad has value, but that's kind of where that decision came from that it wasn't any great secret or oh I think he's due it's more a matter of look the underlying numbers kind of show that he's driving play in the right direction and usually the offense starts to follow I haven't kind of run through every projection that I do to to see whether or not possession numbers sort of match what the expectation is and maybe that's kind of the next the next step is in terms of doing forecasting is also projecting what you think possession numbers are going to be for that player and then you know you can kind of look back and see whether there's been a correlation between increase or decline in production and how they fared possession yeah Bukestad is a guy that we've we've been big on for a while now for that reason also Mathieu Perrault Uh, Mm -hmm. is also somebody who has great possession numbers and wasn't doing much for the beginning of the season and then, as we know, broke out. What I wonder with Corsi in terms of fantasy value is when when we backed off, it was because I had a conversation with someone who said, well, you know, a guy could have 47% of the shot attempts for, but still put more shot attempts on net than somebody who has 52 or 55% of shot attempts for while he's on the ice. And I feel like the sweet spot is somewhere between Corsi 4% and Corsi pace. So a, a way to measure how many events, how many Corsi events are actually being taken into that total. Totally. I, I completely agree. I had somebody from uh, Washington comment on that earlier this year. I, I wrote something about Ovechkin because Ovechkin's kind of possession number, like percentage, was pretty good and still been pretty good. The Capitals have, have had kind of good possession numbers all year under trots. But I guess Ovechkin's Corsi 4 has declined a little bit, not anything terribly dramatic, but you know enough that if you were to start wondering why the offense wasn't quite as prolific or why he wasn't quite scoring as much, well, that that might have been a, a clue. But as we've seen lately, with I think he has 11 goals in his last 11 games, no no one's really asking why uh, Ovechkin's not scoring. Anymore. Funny how that works. One of the latest videos that you put on TSN.ca mentioned players due for a downturn over the rest of the season. So let's switch gears in a bit and and, and get into the all star mood for just a few minutes. You know, you see a guy on your fancy team, he gets sent to the All-Star game, and and it's almost like as if he plays for the team you cheer for in real life. It's all right, all right, this guy's great, I'm so proud to have him. But which of those selections, if the All-Star team was chosen at the end of the year, probably won't make it after 82 games? Well, <laughs> okay, but we'll throw the disclaimer on Zemgus Gergensen's because, okay. uh, because yeah, you know, there's special circumstances of him being there. Unless um, something drastic happens to the population of Latvia, I feel yes. like he'll still he'll still oh, you, hang you, in there you, somehow. You think he'll still get the vote? Okay, you know, I mean, the the guy who I and I mentioned him on my video is a guy that I I think is due to fall off is is Nick Foligno, and I. I I don't have a real argument for him being named to the All-Star game this year. I mean, he's 42 points in 43 games. That's, 
that's terrific. I just we, we know the the track record of Nick Foligno, and you see the percentages that he's kind of been riding to this point in the season. And it, it would be easy enough to see a guy who has 42 points now might have 62 points by season's end. And at that at that point, it's not it's not quite the same thing. You know, he's not this point per game player that he has been through through the first half and a bit. So. Look, Nick, Nick Foligno got paid pretty well out, out of having that first half of the season, and I think he's, I think he can be a useful player. I just, I'm not quite there yet on Nick Foligno as a, an all-star by season. Then. We have a lot of people also asking us about Rick Nash, and my line on Rick Nash all season has been like shooting percentage mm-hmm. way too high, you know, at a rate he hasn't seen in his career, and then I wonder, well. Is it possible that he does keep this up? I, I feel like the, the dangerous comparison I can make is to Alex Steen last year, who we said the same thing, you know, when he was scoring yeah. goals at an insane rate. And it's like, God, oh, don't worry, it's going to be over. And I felt this way about Felino this year, too. I, I traded him earlier this season thinking that, you know, his his scoring days weren't going to last that long. And Rick Nash is like tearing it up, still tearing it up. Is he somebody who you also see a downturn in? It seems like an overwhelming amount of success. Like there's watching him, it's hard to find a real chink in that armor. Yeah, well, here's the thing like that. When I did that, that video on our website, I think I put five guys on a, on a list, like on a, one of the boards that we put up while, while I was doing it. And Nash, I think, was like the sixth or seventh guy that I had under consideration. So we're, we're kind of on the, on the same boat there that, yeah, like the, the shooting percentage is, is high. But with the thing that kind of gets me is, you know, everybody sees that Rick Nash leads the league in goals with 28 goals, and, and they're excited about that. But, like, his shots per game are down. I think he's had more shots per game, like, in, for the past four years uh, compared to what he's doing now. And it's not that 3.7 shots per game is, you know, that's still a goal scorer's kind of rate of getting shots on goal. But he, he was pushing four for the past couple seasons. And in, in some ways, this is almost like a market correction that where last year in the playoffs, he, he couldn't score for anything. Right. You know, I think he had three goals in the whole playoffs. But, you know, in, in some ways, I think he, he's benefited a little bit from this hot start that, yeah, the percentages have kind of come bounced back a little bit and probably better than they're going to be by season's end. You know, if he's over 17% shooting now, I mean, what if, if he ends the year at, you know, shooting 12 or 14 or something like that, that would still be good, better than what he's had in, in previous years. But, it wouldn't be kind of outrageous and you wouldn't you wouldn't be looking at 60 goal Rick Nash it might be 44 goals or something like the, the way percentages can fluctuate it's easy to to look at what a guy has done through kind of half the season and think oh my gosh you know look at the pace that he's on but all of a sudden he goes through an 8 or 10 game stretch where he doesn't score and the percentages correct themselves awfully quickly you kind of have to be careful with that and the kind of caveat that I throw with any of those guys and particularly a guy like Nash is if you're a really highly skilled player who scored a lot of goals, I kind of give you the benefit of the doubt on percentages for a, a little bit more than I would like. In the case of Felino, Felino doesn't have a real track record of, of scoring a ton of goals and, and putting up huge points. Uh, his career high is 47 points. So I'm more skeptical of him, whereas Nash, and, and I, I think to, to a guy like Corey Perry, Corey Perry puts up some real high percentages playing with, with Ryan Getzlaff, and but I kind of live with that. As, as an expectation that, yeah, well, if, if Corey Perry is going to score 50 goals, it's because the, the percentages are just uh, inflated. Now, I'm not, you know, I, Rick Nash doesn't have Ryan Getzlaff at center, but, you know, Derek Stepan's a pretty good player, and I could see Nash having kind of a, a high percentage season. I just, I, I would agree with you that where the success he's had to this point is probably better than what it's going to be for the second half of the so year. So if you are a Rick Nash owner, you're still going to sell high, right? 
Well, that's yeah, that's probably the play. But in in doing that, when you're selling high on a guy like Rick Nash, like you better get value in return, right? Like that's if you're going to sell the guy who's leading the league in goals, the offer coming your way better be significant. And I think that that is a great place to get value. Though any, anytime you're anytime you find somebody who's riding high percentages, there's a chance for you to find an inefficiency in the market if somebody wants to to pay you for what they've done. And and we'll get that on that video too. The guys who I talked about maybe falling off of that, that line uh, in Tampa Bay, you know, Kucherov, Tyler Johnson, and Andre Palat, like they're, they're great. And, you know, I've, I've sung their praises plenty of times this year already, but at the same time, you know, you get a line that is, you know, shooting better than 12% uh, at even strength. And, you know, that that's the kind of stuff that just doesn't hold over a full season for, you know, it's very, very rare for it to, to last. And so I kind of picked Kucherov as the guy that I would, that I'd be looking to sell highest on because Johnson and Pilat play a bit more and kind of more more trusting in the, in their role with the the Lightning. But in all three cases, I think you could make an argument that the percentages just are more likely to go down in the second half, and so there's probably value if you can get somebody who will pay you for what they produced in the first half. It's really been something to see an entire line come to fantasy relevance all of a sudden and and neither one drop off like these three seem to be having the same success or even more sustained success than the STL line in St. Louis because I feel like Letera dropped off of those three even though Schwartz and Tarasenko are still doing just fine you've got three guys who've been clicking all season and it's so hard to cut bait on either of them though I, I agree with you that Kucherov you can probably get the most back for in trade value I think he's the most exciting player to to watch and to even think about I I've said before, like just the ending of his name, I think makes him appealing to a lot of fantasy players. Well, but it, like the market, um, you know, yeah. there, there can be an appeal in you know certain kinds of players, and like what I find in in a lot of my leagues is that when I'm looking at value, it ends up being European guys where I find more value, you know, and maybe it's the Canadian thing where people are, you know, they're drawn to Rick Nash more easily than they are to somebody, whether it's Philip Forsberg or Nikita Kucherov or you know, Letora was a guy who I, I counted a little bit in the preseason just as an, a bit of an unknown because of the, the European background doesn't, I guess, generate kind of the, the same attention as, you know, say some, some kid who played in the Canadian Hockey League and everybody had heard of from the time he was 15. Speaking of narratives that influence our decisions, there is another narrative out there, especially in fantasy, of second-half performers. So oftentimes somebody will be disappointed with a player it's like their favorite player and they say no no he's a second half performer he's going to accelerate his production after the all-star break even though he was reasonably quiet in the first 45 games or so now I already kind of know your answer I asked you to look into this for a few minutes before we chatted did you find any players in the league who have a history of producing more in the second half than they do in the first or even vice versa well, here's the the thing is kind of my my first thought on on that when you go first half second half the guy who comes to mind for me is Brian Savage the guy who used to play for Montreal Canadiens. <laughs> wow, because, you went well, you went way back. Well, only because you know I mean I grew up a Canadian fan back back in the day as it were, and Savage was almost notorious for getting off to a really great start in the season. Like October November were were great months for Brian Savage, and he usually tailed off. You know he played a lot with Saku Koivu, and so I actually I looked up Brian Savage and his number he actually did perform better in the first half than the second half of the season or kind of pre-all-star to post-all-star but 
when I started thinking about more, you know, modern players and okay, who, who's had some, you know, some strong finishes over the past few years that you might be able to use. And I mean, you kind of have to go back a bit because sometimes the all-star break, like, you know, the lockout season, there's no all-star break, the Olympics, well, you're getting kind of a, a late all-star break in some cases. Like, so sometimes it, it isn't apples to apples kind of comparison, but so I, I kind of found a few guys who had had, been among the league leaders, say, in, in the post-All-Star break scoring. And I looked at Andre Kopitar and Corey Perry, Jason Spezza. But then I looked at their numbers, kind of, okay, career numbers post-All-Star break compared to career numbers pre-All-Star break, and they're practically the same, like like literally 1% difference, if if any. And so I, you know, at that point, I'm kind of like, well, maybe maybe there really isn't this great second-half performer. And, and that doesn't mean somebody couldn't find one to, to, to prove me wrong, but I just... I, I don't have anybody that comes to mind as, yes, I definitely want this guy for the second half as opposed to the first yeah, half. Yeah, I'm interested if, if anybody listening might happen to think of somebody who's done it, like, not just one year we're talking. We're talking, like, two, three, four, even two years, I don't think, would be enough to convince <laughs> me. Uh, you're going to need to show me that it's happened several times over a player's career. I'm really interested to see, though. We had a similar conversation recently on over on our Facebook page about shooting percentage and how, you know, maybe a player like Rick Nash, who is shooting so high and doing so well, maybe he's actually improved. Maybe his shooting talent or skill or shot selection has actually gotten better. I wasn't able to find anybody in the league who has shown like a legitimate improvement in shooting percentage. Every time they go up, they generally come back down, except for Daniel Sedin. He did it like a few years into his career and then it actually got cut off when he was concussed and then when he came back he's been shooting like four or five percent lower. Like percentages are, are such a funny thing to kinda to deal with. And and I remember earlier in the year when, you know, Nash got off to a real good start and I saw somebody on television talking about him taking higher quality shots and I thought, well, you know, that's the kind of thing that gets thrown out when the guy starts finishing on twenty percent of the shots. And and so you know, I looked up on, I think, sporting charts or uh, either there or War on Ice and, and checked out the shot locations and stuff for Rick Nash. And it was like, well, yeah, maybe he was taking, you know, higher quality shots for that little stretch. You know, you might be able to say, well, you know, his average shot, maybe you could say for the first 30 games, well, he, he was shooting uh, on a slightly closer average than than it has been than it has been before but when you watch those things go over a full season they really tend to to fall back in the in the same range you know like like if you went and looked at say rick nash's average shot distance over his career like most years are going to be very close there just isn't a a tendency for for a player to all of a sudden find the key that oh oh, yeah now now i can suddenly start taking shots 10 feet closer than i was the year before that that really doesn't exist actually i believe in in everything you just said quite firmly and, and I'm a proponent of, of making sure that, that that is something people understand when they're evaluating a player either for, for the NHL or for their fantasy team. But I do have to admit, like, it seems a little counterintuitive to think that a player isn't going to improve, say, from years like three to seven in their careers. Like, they're not going to become any better as a shooter. Well, yeah, and, and I... <sighs> particularly if, if it's a young guy, you know, like I think there's kind of a natural career arc. A player comes in, maybe his shooting percentage isn't great for the first couple of years and it picks up in his third year. Well, like I, I'm on board with following that career arc and, and that the improvement is a legitimate thing. Like I don't think that players are, are destined to be the player they were when they showed right. up their first day in the league. But it, it's more about like in the case of Nash, when you're talking a guy who's been around the league for, for 12 years, 
you didn't unlock some secret in your 12th year in the league that you didn't know in the first 11. And yeah, and over a small sample, you may be, you know, maybe getting some higher quality shots. And, you know, there are a whole range of reasons why that could happen. You know, your opposition may not be as be as good over that stretch of games or, or you know, your your teammates are just playing kind of exceptionally well over that period of games. But the whole the whole question of, of percentages and sustainability is can you keep doing it over a full season and multiple seasons really to kind of show how legitimate it is. And that's the kind of thing that is really tough. I, I know when Eric Pelsky had done some work on players who can consistently get shots from in close. And one of the findings that he came up with was that like Jonathan Taves and John Tavares were two guys who were in the top 10 in the league for average shot distance setting out requirements, you know, for games played and shot attempts and all that stuff. But they were kind of consistently in the top 10 in the league for average shot distance. And that was probably a skill you could attribute to Taves and Tavares because A, they're really highly skilled players, but that they could do it and repeat it year after year. It's one thing to be Thomas Holmstrom or Andrew Burnett, guys who stood on the top of the crease and have a really low average shot distance because that's the only place you get the puck. But when it's guys like Tavares and Taves, and I'm not sure who else was even in there, is consistently at the top, the, the few guys who can do it are exceptions rather than the rule. Scott, let me change the topic a little bit. And let's talk for a second about your, your fantasy hockey philosophy because being in a league with you i've noticed that you seem to be a a man of few transactions no trades three moves on the whole season you're not like one of those guys who went inactive after the first two weeks and that's why you have three moves you you are there as far as i can tell every day and and even that couldn't prevent you from losing to me in our matchup but i noticed that you you don't tend to shift your lineup around too much what's your thinking behind that it seems ultra conservative it probably is, and, and I'm probably stubborn in, in some ways. That you know, if a guy say goes through a slump, I tend to stick with him. If I like, and who do I have on that team? I have Jonathan Drouin sitting on that team, right? He has, he has two goals. It's like if I have that player, and then yeah, there I've got a few guys in my team, and I'm kind of eh, I, I'd be happy to to get rid of them. and then I go to the waiver wire and I just go, oh, <laughs> I'm, I'm no more I'm no more excited about what's sitting on the waiver wire and then I kind of come back and go alright well I guess I'm, I'll hang on to, to this player but trading I, I find that I, I do better trading once I've kind of been familiar with a league this is my first year joining that we're in here with, with James Myrtle and so I'm you know I like the league a lot I think it's competitive and, and smart guys are in it and, and I'm enjoying that but I also in some ways it's, it's a bit of a feeling out for, for me to A get, kind of get used to the rosters and the categories like James has slightly different categories than I have in, in my other leagues so it takes some getting used to and, and deciding on how I want to evaluate my players but yeah I, I can acknowledge that I am fairly conservative in how I've done it so far. Let's start winding this down with a quick lightning round. Let's actually right. stick with the theme that you just mentioned about not wanting to drop guys who aren't producing because the waiver wire free agency pool doesn't seem to offer a whole lot more. I took a risk and I feel like maybe you know it, it's a case of the devil you know and the, the devil you don't. I, I picked up David Pasternak. Mm, yeah, I'm a huge fan. Go. Yeah, he was averaging three and a half shots on goal for like his first several games. And now he has three shots on goal in his last four games, although his ice time hasn't changed significantly. I call him like a wild card. I have no idea what's going to happen with this guy. I'm not going to pretend to know. What do you think? Yeah, well, and this is the thing is definitely a wild card but it's one that I'd be willing to, to kind of play for a bit. One, because he's getting a good opportunity in, in Boston, right? Like he's playing with Krejci and Lucic and, you know, and the Bruins have been, they've tried a bunch of bodies on that right side to replace Jerome McGinley and haven't really found anybody. Now, 
I've got a, a few things here that sort of, I guess, bias me in favor of Pasternak right now. One, before he even got drafted, I had heard from some scouts who were really high on him. And so the fact that he lasted down to, to 25th in the draft was a bit of a surprise. And then some in the World Juniors, and I thought he looked pretty good. <laughs> but then I watched the games where he happened to score two goals, you know, two against Philadelphia and then two against Tampa Bay. And, and the, game, the game against Tampa Bay in particular, like, he looked like a star. Not only did he score two goals, I think he got a post and had a few other quality chances, had, had seven shots on that. Like he, as an 18-year-old, he looked like the best player on the ice. And, and so having seen that in front of you, it gets very easy to, to get excited about the talent of a player. But then I haven't watched every Bruins game since to see games where he doesn't get any, get any shots on goal. And so in most cases, though, like I, I would go for a young guy like Pasternak based on the opportunity. You know, I mean, yes, I like the talent and potential and all that, but the fact that he's getting a chance playing with Krejci and Lucic is enough for me to be interested in, in most cases. It is exciting because, it, like you mentioned, his draft position and how he slipped, they're usually in that range. Like, as a Sens fan, I think, okay, late first round, it's like Jimmy O'Brien or Patrick <laughs> Eves type guys. Yeah, it's not yeah. someone I'm ever jumping for. So maybe this will help me get over that psychological hump. Let's talk about two goalies that have come recently out of the ECHL. One has played a little more time in the NHL than the other. But Michael Hutchinson is somebody who I actually I picked up off free agency after the draft. I traded him away, which I never did because I'm stuck with the other ECHL alumnus, Darcy Kemper. Hutchinson's save percentage is just insane. Is there any way this can keep up? And I know the answer. Like, I know it's unsustainable. <laughs> but yeah. I still, like, I believe. I believe in Michael Hutchinson. Yeah, and, and yeah, you know the answer is no. He's not going to finish with a 9.35 save percentage. And I mean, look, there isn't a guarantee that he won't because in the course of one season, you know, you get goalies who do this. I mean, look, you're, you've seen with the Senators, Craig Anderson was 9.41 during the lockout year. In a shortened season, in the case of Hutchinson, because he kind of split time with Andre Pavlik for the first half of the year, by season's end, he might have 35 games, even if he plays quite a bit down the stretch. And so, yeah, the percentage could stay higher, but I think the odds are that it's going to come down, and, and that's okay. If, if Michael Hutchinson ends the year with a save percentage like over 920, like that, that's fantastic. And certainly the Jets, having seen Andre Pavlik for the last five years, they jump for joy over a goaltender who's going to stop that many pucks. So, And I think when you you know, you know look at the minor league track record of Hutchinson, it doesn't say future star, but it says, yeah, he's probably an AHL goalie. I think he's, what, 917 in the AHL, 920 in the ECHL. Like, he's stopping enough to make you think that by the time he's reached the NHL, he's got some legitimacy to his game. And a great, great pickup if you manage to get him. Even if the save percentage isn't going to stay at this level the rest of the way, you probably still have a chance to have a pretty productive guy because it seems he's taking more starts and playing behind a pretty good team. And finally, a two-pronged question to wrap things up. It seems that the Panthers and the Leafs are both playing somewhat uncharacteristically at the moment, although I'm not sure we can really attribute that word to the Panthers' play anymore. So what I'm asking you is who is more likely to, quote-unquote, normalize of the two teams? Is it more likely that the Panthers are going to go down in terms of production or that the Leafs are going to come up? I think more likely is that the Leafs are going to rebound. And so Kessel will score again and Kadri will score again. I'm not sure whether Bozak will score. It depends on who he's playing with. It, it depends on if he's playing with Kessel because if he's not, then I know he won't score again either. But 
you know, when you when you look at the Panthers, the Panthers, it's hard because, yeah, they had some guys like Trocek and Hayes and even Huberto probably lately is, is elevated up there where their percentages are a little bit high. But as a team, their percentages have been so low and quite frankly, not just this year, like for multiple years that getting any kind of offensive surge is, is sort of noteworthy for them. And so even if some of those guys like, say, Trocek and Hayes and Huberto start to decline, I could easily see Barkov being a guy who jumps up. He's had really low production through the first half plus of the season, but he has a pretty strong possession game. I mean, I know this goes back to our point about Corsi 4 rate as opposed to uh, percentage, and I know Barkov's percentage is strong, but the rate is probably not that great based on that's sort of the way the Panthers play. They don't generate a ton of opportunities, but they also don't allow a lot of opportunities. That's sort of their MO. So I think the more likely scenario is that the Leafs will kind of bounce back and they'll be able to score okay in the second half. But I, I can, because I'm kind of back and forth on Florida, like I, I can see them regressing, but at the same time, there are a few areas where I think that regression could get offset. Two very different storylines this season, the Leafs and the Panthers. I'm excited to see how things play out the rest of the year. That's all I've got for you today. So Scott Cullen from TSN and TSN.ca, thank you so much for taking the time to join us on Keeping Carlson. Super helpful, super informative. We really appreciate it. Well, cool. Thanks for having me on. It was fun, Brian. One last time, I implore you to read Scott's statistically speaking columns over at tsn.ca. And he's also a great follow on Twitter for fantasy and hockey news at TSN Scott Cullen. Holy cow. What an amazing interview. Great job, Brian. And thank you so much to Scott Cullen for coming on the show. We've still got a couple of players of note that we want to talk about before closing things out. But before we do that, let's, of course, thank the patrons of Keeping Carlson for giving us their amazing support. We thank you so much. $5 a month donation is what we're asking for. And the people who do it, we really appreciate it. And I want to specifically thank Luke Name and Dave Brock for their recent contributions. And, you know, they don't just give it and get nothing. They have access to our awesome patron-only Facebook group where we're discussing fantasy hockey all the time, even a little bit during the All-Star break. That was one place where you could go to discuss fantasy hockey. And, of course, we have our monthly patron casts. I guess it'll be a couple of weeks before our next one. Should be a lot of fun, like always. So thanks again to the patrons. And if you are interested in becoming a patron, you can check out all of the information at keepingcarlson.com patron. But like I said, we still have a couple more players we want to talk about. So, Brian, why don't you go ahead and present your player of note for the week? My player of note this week, Elon, is Brandon Saad. He's on a line with Jonathan Taves and Marion Hosa. He's seeing a smaller share of the offensive zone starts than many of his teammates, but a slight uptick in ice time to go along with that. In fact, He'd seen more than 18 minutes of ice time only four times going into the new year. But since January 1st, he's seen 18 minutes or more in six of the 10 contests that the Blackhawks have been involved in in that span. And he has the production to justify those minutes. He's got seven goals and two assists for nine points in his last 10 games played. But it's not only the points that are coming. He's thrown a season high seven shots on goal twice in his last three games, which is actually a huge departure from his usual average of about two per game. I don't know if there's a long-term trend there in the amount of shots he takes, but it's something worth watching. But we can return to point and still find reasons to laud this guy. He leads all Blackhawks in points scored at even strength, picking up an astonishing 28 of his 32 points on the season at 5-on-5, and that actually puts him in a tie for 8th in the entire NHL with the likes of 
Kyle Lacposo, Jacob Voracek, Jamie Benn, Evgeny Malkin, Steven Stamkos. He's also been the second most efficient scorer in Chicago this season, behind only Chris Versteeg and even strength points scored per 60 minutes. Something else, though, that he and Versteeg have in common is the highest on-ice shooting percentage on their team, along with Brad Richards, and that's definitely helped Saad put up the numbers that he has to date. But in any case, he's poised to set a new career high for points scored this season, and I think he's going to do it. He just needs to crack 47. I can see him getting 50 or more. He's a guy that we were still cool to last season. We've always got a ton of questions about him. People wanting to know, is now the time to pick up side, especially last season, and usually paired with Andrew Shaw in those kinds of questions. But he is setting himself apart, finally, and I am definitely ready to throw my weight behind him now. So let's give it up for Brandon Side. Okay, Brian's a fan. And you love to talk about the uh, even strength points, eh? I do like to talk about even strength points. I have a higher degree of trust in players who can produce at even strength and don't rely on only the power play to get their scoring. Yeah, I guess it makes sense. But yeah, like, for example, when you were talking about Minnesota and you mentioned how Jason Zucker has the most even strength goals on his team, but Zach Parise has the most goals overall. Just a few of his are on the power play. Which is actually a boon to Poolies, right? Because power play points are counted. And, and I get where you're coming from. But if you look at the flip side, you look at somebody who has all of their production on the power play or a disproportionate chunk of it, like Tyler Bozak. And when the power play goes cold or the team does not get enough opportunities or maybe he gets bumped off that power play unit, he has nothing left to show for his production at even strength. Yeah, actually, in my discussion with Brock Sagan, which is going to be released in a couple of days, I talk about Mark Strait and how he's been doing really well lately. But actually, he has 10 points in January, I believe, and nine of them are on the power play. I guess to you, that's an indication that he's potentially like a Bozak type, like he won't be able to keep up this production. Bozak is kind of in a class of his own. Maybe it was like a bit of an extreme example to use. And Strait, I think, is in a pretty good place on that Flyers power play. They're not going through any significant team changes right now. I mean, it's true. When you're on the power play, pucks go in more often than they do at even strength. And I'm not going to begrudge a player because too many of his points are on the power play because, of course, he's helping you in more fantasy categories that way. I'm just saying I'm going to take it back to how I started my answer and just just say that I have more trust. I have more faith in a player who shows me that he can produce at five on five when everything's equal and, you know, it's harder to score than on the power play. I see more talent. So suppose that player gets more responsibility on the power play or more ice time as Brandon Saad is doing, at least at even strength ice time. And then it becomes just like a bonus. Right now, Saad is on the second unit in Chicago. He does not see a ton of time on the power play. But should he move up to that first unit, that would just be the cherry on top because he is capable at even strength okay fair enough and hey he's got two power play points in his last three games so good for brandon saw definitely a great player of note i want to talk about i guess a couple of players basically i want to go to the new york islanders we talked about josh bailey over the past couple of weeks and about how he's been on the first line and doing pretty well but i feel like there's a couple of other players worth mentioning we talked about anders lee way back at the beginning of the season when he got called up from the minors as someone that people might want to look at. And then it seemed almost like we had given bad advice because he sort of went pointless for a a good long stretch. But Lee is currently on a five-game point streak, four goals and one assist, and he's putting up a lot of shots, which is the reason why we said that we were interested in him in the first place. Of course, the downside with a guy like Anders Lee is that he doesn't get a lot of ice time. He's still averaging around 12 13 minutes a game, 
If he went up at all, I'd say he's for sure worth adding in your league just because of all the shots he takes. But even now, with limited ice time, he is taking lots of shots and pucks are going in for him lately. So maybe a guy to watch is Anders Lee. But on the other side, maybe a snoozer on the Islanders right now, at least in shallow leagues, I would say is Brock Nelson. He, of course, had that amazing start to the year. And overall, his numbers look good. You know, 30 points in 46 games. That's definitely fantasy relevant. But if you look over his past 10 games, only three points. So he's really slowed down. Also, his ice time has decreased. He's been below 16 minutes for the past five games. He was, you know, when he was doing really well, he was higher, closer to like 17 minutes. So I'd say thumbs up right now for Anders Lee. Thumbs down right now for Brock Nelson. Not necessarily saying that I would drop Nelson for Lee, but maybe it's something to start considering. What do you think, Brian? A nice little nod to Dave Hodge there, Elon, with your thumbs. I think the most exciting line for sure in New York right now, not just offensively, but what they've also managed in terms of possession is that line of Anders Lee, Ryan Strom, and Franz Nielsen. And Lee is a guy who's been on my watch list for a while now, and I would pick him up over Nelson if I was given a choice between the two. So good eye. Before we close, Elon, I guess this is like a semi-snoozer because it's only been one game since the change happened, but Brian Bickle, it's worth mentioning mentioning is off that second line in Chicago. Yeah, we mentioned on the last episode that while he was on that second line, he had some value and was worth maybe picking up short term. Then he sort of did a sneaky thing because he was dropped off that second line, but then put up two assists. So it kind of made it seem as if we had given good advice. But really, I actually tweeted out from our account saying, don't be distracted by that two assist game. He's off that line and doesn't really have any value anymore until he gets back there. And, you know, the next game, he had zero shots and zero points. So I think that it's time definitely to let go of Brian Bickle if you picked him up to ride while he was on that line. Yeah, no shots on goal in those last two games. And I don't expect a return to the top six is imminent for him either. We'll have to see, though, if it unfolds after the All-Star break. I am not bullish on his chances, though. And that's going to do it for this All-Star extravaganza episode of Keeping Carlson. And it was an All-Star episode because we had an All-Star guest in Scott Cullen. So thanks again. Mr. Cullen for coming on our humble podcast and we definitely love to hear feedback of what you guys thought about that interview and about the rest of the show so let us know you could follow us and tweet at us on Twitter at Keeping Carlson and of course if you make any moves based on anything you heard on the show we always love to hear about that also if you want to show us an extra little bit of appreciation you could head on over to iTunes and give us a five-star review there a great way to give some exposure to our podcast and then, like I mentioned before, you could always look into becoming a patron of Keeping Carlson, keepingcarlson.com slash patron. But that's it for this week. Like I mentioned, we are going to have a bonus episode coming out in a couple of days. My interview with Brock Sagan from Daily Faceoff, editor-in-chief of Daily Faceoff. It's our quarter two report. But I guess it's time to cue that outro music and Brian read us the credits. Okay, with thanks once more to Scott Cullen, this show was presented by Daily Faceoff and was supported by our patrons. This show was researched with help from War on Ice, Behind the Net, Roto World, Yahoo Sports, and ESPN Fantasy Hockey. Great job, Brian. Listeners, you'll be hearing from me and Brock Sagan probably on Tuesday. And Brian, I'll talk to you next week. Until then, keep on keeping Carl Sand.